We're working through the book of Mark. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And what's going on in the book of Mark is uh, Mark is writing the story of Jesus Christ and of his disciples and of his disciples finding um, who Jesus is and how to follow Jesus more faithfully. And Jesus has been doing a series of miracles after he's done a little bit of teaching. And we come to the second half of Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And Jesus is again asked by uh, an individual to go and to meet his needs. And this is something that we do on a day-by-day basis, right? We go to Jesus Christ and we ask Jesus to meet our needs. And we wonder sometimes if he's able to meet our needs. If you don't wonder that sometimes, then uh, congratulations, your faith is, is, is amazingly strong. But uh, speaking as your pastor, there are times sometimes when I pray to God and I wonder, um, will you answer, do you answer, can you answer this request? And we begin in Mark chapter 5, and we have the request that's laid out to Jesus, starting in verse 21. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Remember, anywhere Jesus goes, the crowds follow. They flock to him because he's a miracle worker, and he has the power to teach with authority different than anyone else around him. So there's this huge crowd gathering around him by the sea. He's just pulled up his boat, and the crowds are flocking over to him. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now, this is an interesting thing. The synagogue is, is the, the local church in the Jewish life. That's what it was. They would gather, uh, really, you could go there any day, uh, and there would be people there teaching, reading from the scrolls, reading from Isaiah or from Jeremiah, or from back in the, the Pentateuch, uh, you know, Genesis and Exodus and such. Um, but the, the teachers would get up, and they would read a passage, and then they would expound on that passage. And Jairus is, is described as a ruler or a leader of the synagogue. That means he was kind of the head honcho of that local synagogue. Maybe there's a couple other guys along with him, but he was exceptionally important in that community. Right? He was he was someone who everyone knew. He had a great deal of respect from the people around him. And he sees Jesus and he runs up to Jesus and he falls on his knees before him at Jesus' feet. This is interesting because this is out of custom, right? Men back then and men today typically don't run and fall on their knees in front of other men, right? It's, it's kind of a humiliating posture for a man to be in. Multiply our shame by a factor of 10 or 12 times, and that's what you would have gotten back in the ancient Near East. This was a humiliating act for him to do, and he was a leader, and so this ultimate leader in this, this local church runs down to Jesus and falls on his knees, and he has a request of Jesus, right? His request is so urgent that he throws away his pride, he throws away everything else, and he comes to Jesus and he implores him. Verse 22 says, he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And verse 24 begins, and he went 
with him. I love this, right? So the man comes and he says, my daughter is about to die. This is the time whenever sometimes we go to Jesus in prayer, right? We don't go to Jesus early in our problems. We don't go to Jesus whenever the problem is manageable by our standards. We wait until it's out of control and then we go to God and we say, God, I've made a mess. I I could have come to you six years ago. I could have come to you six months ago. I could have come to you six hours ago. But right now at this point of crisis, I need you. This is the test-taking prayer, right? You walk into class and you forget that you had a test. I've been there, right? I walked into class and they, they didn't tell me I had a test. I remember my freshman year as a, a student uh, at Houston Baptist University, you know, the first day of class in college, this is good for you if you haven't been to college yet, they give you a packet of papers and they tell you this is a syllabus, which is not something I had in high school. And they said, this is a syllabus. And I said, that's great. And it had all these rules like don't plagiarize and be in class on time. And there's about a million pages in these things. And the back of it, it's kind of the class schedule. And it's kind of like, here's what we're going to do each day. Here's what's due each day. Uh, college professors expect you to be able to read, right? And so unlike your high school teacher that reminds you, hey, we're going to have a test on Tuesday. Right, your college teacher doesn't feel compelled to do that. And so I walked into a psychology class my first year, my first semester at Houston Baptist University, and all my, my classmates are like feverishly going through notes and stuff like that. And I'm just kind of walking in there. I, I don't take notes. Uh, my wife didn't like that about me, but I'm not a note taker. I'm like an engaged person. Uh, and so if I have a pencil, I'll kind of draw pictures and stuff, but I don't take notes. And so I didn't have any notes to study. I didn't know I was supposed to be studying notes. And I see these people and they're really worried. And I said, what, what's going on here? And they're like, don't you know we have a test today? And I said, no, I did not know that. And at that moment, I did this prayer, right? At that moment, in that moment of crisis, when I could have prepped, when I could have asked God for wisdom for hours and hours and days of studying, I came to God and I said, God, I listened in class. I know I listened in class and I was here at least 90% of these classes, Okay. So if you, this is always my prayer, right? I don't want to be too presumptuous. It says, God, if you will help me to recall every single thing I heard, I will give you all the glory that I can, right? And then I sit down and I take a test, right? right? That is the prayer of Jairus, right? His daughter is at the point of death. It's beyond, she's sick, she's got a cough, she's got the sniffles, she's not doing well, I'm not really sure what's going on here, we've got to get the doctors involved. It's way past all that, she is literally dying. And he comes to her at that moment. Guys, there's, there's a lesson here for us, right? Which is, which is it's never too late to go to Jesus Christ in prayer. But sometimes we're going to save ourselves a lot of trouble if we'll go to him earlier. Right? We get into a lot of trouble because we, 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 wait, we wait and we wait and we wait. And we think that we're going to manage the situation. We're going to fix the situation. We're going to handle the situation. And then at the end of it, we go to the Lord in prayer. Start there. It will save you trouble. You will be better off if you do that. But Jesus Christ cares for this man. He cares for this girl. And so he agrees to go and see Jairus's little daughter. And so he went with them as verse 24 begins. And continuing, he says, and a great crowd followed him as is usual, and they thronged about him. He's like a rock star, right? I mean, everywhere he goes, people are trying to push up against him. It's, it's a crazy crush of humanity. Uh, and there was a woman in the middle of that throng who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. So Jesus is on his way to see this little girl who's dying, and there's a woman in the crowd who has her own problems. And her problems is she's had 12 
years of bleeding. This is probably some sort of menstrual bleeding. That's the way the word reads. And if that's what it is, she is unclean. That means she can, she can never be uh, with a man if she's married. She can never be with her husband. If she's not married, it means she's never going to get married. Right? She's had 12 years of just some sort of a bleed, some sort of thing inside of her body isn't right. And as Mark uh, writes it here, he says, she had suffered under many doctors, right? Some of y'all have done that game before, right? You go to a doctor and, and instead of getting well, you feel like you're suffering under their care. Well, the doctor's care today is dramatically better, right? Our suffering under doctors is dramatically different than hers. I mean, the treatments that she would have gone under, uh, the things that we would say are not even medieval that she probably experienced uh, was absolutely tragic. And not only had she suffered, oh, that note, by the way, suffered, under, suffered greatly under many doctors, uh, Luke, who was a doctor, writes this story as well, but he leaves that line out. That's kind of weird, right? Um, but, uh, you know, something about professional, don't, don't get on to your other colleagues. I don't know. So, uh, but Mark writes it, and so we know she's been to the doctor. She's been uh, trying to get well through all of the ways that people tell her to get well, and she is hopeless. So just like Jairus, she's hopeless. She'd spent everything that she had, which probably means we assume that she's unmarried. I feel like that, that, that word um, for woman seems to lend that she's unmarried uh, in the Greek. And so we assume that she's unmarried. And if that's the case, right, she gave everything she has. That means she gave away the, her dowry, the stuff that she would have brought into her wedding. She was unmarriable because she was unclean. And she didn't have anything to offer anymore because she had wasted it all on treatments that didn't work. And she is hopeless, and she sees the man of God come by, and there's this great crowd of people, and she's in the middle of them. And she had heard, verse 27 says, that the reports that, uh, about Jesus. And so she came up behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment. The other gospel accounts say she touched the tassels on his garment. Every good Jewish man would wear a robe, and there would be tassels at the end, and they were to remind you of different providences of God. If you go back into the book of, we'll go with Leviticus, it may be Exodus, um, it talks about how the tassels are to be made and affixed to the, to the robes. So Jesus is wearing this robe, and she reaches out, and she just, she just touches the tassels of his robes. For she said, verse 28, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. That is a crazy, crazy thought, right? That if you touch a piece of fabric that's touching someone else, it's like cooties, I guess, right? That somehow it transfers to you, right? I mean, I, that, that, that thought process in my mind doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up, Right? There are guys on TV right now who will sell you a handkerchief. I'm, I'm sorry. You can donate to their ministry, and they will send you a handkerchief that they've touched, and they promise you that you'll get well if you, if you grab that handkerchief. Don't do that, dear, dear church. Guys, these, these are the problem in the church today, fleecing people out of their savings, fleecing people out of their money so that they can uh, uh, get wealth for themselves. There are many charlatans on TV proclaiming Jesus Christ, but they take this passage when Jesus has this miracle work, and they say that they have the same power in them. And, and I'm just going to warn you, don't, don't follow that. So this woman is hopeless. She reaches out. She touches the tassels of his garment because she believes. Her faith says, if I can just get close enough to him, he can make me well. 
And immediately after she touched him, verse 29 says, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she knew it. She felt it in her body that she was healed of her disease. We don't know how she knew it, but she had been sick for 12 years and in an instant she knew she was well. And somehow just reaching out and touching the very edge of the garment of Jesus Christ uh, gave her the power to be well. And at that moment, right, at that moment, Jesus perceived in verse 30 that power had gone out from him. He felt that someone had received healing. So immediately he turned around in the crowd and he said, who touched me? Or who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you right? And yet you say to us, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, right? There's a whole crowd of people touching Jesus and stuff like that. And not all of these people are getting well, right? Some of these people may have other issues and problems and they're reaching out to touch Jesus. But this woman, somehow when she touched Jesus, something happened. Jesus knew it and she knew it. No one else in the crowd understood what had taken place in that moment. This desperate woman's prayer had been answered by the Son of God. And so so he looks around and he says, who touched me? And so she, verse 33, um, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, just like Jairus had before. And she told him the whole truth. And the whole truth is, I've been 12 years, I've, I've been dealing with this, right? She lays out her whole story. And Jesus responds to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. See, the reason this woman received like this, this, this blessing from Jesus Christ, right? the reason she received it is because the faith that she demonstrated to Jesus Christ. Right? She looked at Jesus and said, you are able to do more than anyone else. Right? She had been everywhere else. She had seen everyone else, and when she saw Christ, she said, that is my last hope, and she reached out to him. And she, she reached her hand out to him. She said, please make me well, and as she reached, she was made well, and Jesus confirms that in her, right? He confirms it. He says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed from your disease. Don't experience this evermore and he's still on his way so while he was still speaking there he is dealing with this situation there came from the ruler's house from Jairus's house some who said your daughter is dead why trouble the teacher any further so Jesus was delayed on his way to see the little girl and the girl died in the process and they say why bother him just let him go about his business there's nothing you can do now, right? There is a point of no return, right? There's a spot where we can't go beyond it. And they believed that that spot was death. They said, she's dead. It's done. Nothing can be done for her any longer. But Jesus, overhearing what they said, verse 36 says, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe, right? The exact same thing that he was confirming in the lady who was healed a second ago, he wants to reiterate to Jairus. He says, don't be afraid right now. Just have a little faith. Just believe, right? I'm on my way. If you'll just have a little faith, don't fear. Let's see what's going to happen. And so he allowed no one else, Jesus allowed no one else to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother James, his closest disciples. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. By the way, this is what you would do back in the day, is you would pay people to come mourn for your family, 
The richer you were, the more people you would pay. And so people would walk by your house and they would hear professional wailers. That's, a, that's a, like Bob Marley's uh, backup singers, I believe. Um, but but it, you know, they'd have professional criers and they would just scream and yell and oh my goodness, oh, she was so young, right? And you get the whole deal, right? And they're crying and wailing and wailing and crying. And Jesus sees this whole commotion going on out front. And Jairus was a pretty important person, so we can imagine the commotion was quite large. Uh, And so uh, he entered, uh, and when he entered, he said to them, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? Why are you here right now, professional criers? What are you doing in this place? The child is not dead, rather she's sleeping. Right? And this concept of sleep is something that's picked up later in the New Testament uh, when, when Paul is talking about uh, disciples of Christ who have died in the faith. Right? People have died in the faith. We don't die, we sleep uh, is a New Testament term for that. And the reason that it's asleep is there will come a time when there will be an awakening for that body again. Right? It, it's, it's, there's going to come a time when death isn't really final. Right? When we die, we go into the presence of God immediately and our bodies remain here on earth. But your body won't always remain there. Right? There will come a time when, when all of that will be put back together in the second coming of Christ. And I don't know what it's going to look like. Right? I don't know what Halloween movie we're going to be watching uh, for those couple minutes where everything gets put together. But it's going to happen. The body sleeps while the soul experiences the presence of God. And when God brings it all back together, an amazing miracle takes place. And so he tells them this child is just sleeping. And of course, if you've been around professional whalers, which I know we all have, right? Right, you make a joke like that and they just start cracking up. They think it's the funniest thing you've ever seen. By the way, people who deal with death have the worst sense of humor. You ever dealt with like a mortician and just kind of talk to them for a while, right? I, I have lengthy conversations with our local guys. They're good guys. I love Wallace and Steven, the whole group up there. But boy, you get them to tell some stories and it can Man, it it can get some dark humor coming out, right? Uh, So these professional whalers, they deal with death all the time. They hear Jesus say she's just sleeping, and they're like, we're not here for someone sleeping. And so they just crack up. They laugh at him, verse 40 says. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and then those three disciples who were with him, and they went in where the little child was. And taking her by the hand, reaching out and touching her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is Aramaic, and it means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. By the way, 12 years old, the exact age as the lady who'd been bleeding for 12 years, right? So 12 years old. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and they told her to give her something to eat. Guys, this miracle tells us a couple things about Jesus. First of all, Jesus has power over everything. When we think things are done, when we think things are beyond hope, right? Sometimes we get to the point, like I said earlier, where we say, man, all we can do is pray. And that's when the doctors can't do anything, right? When the doctors can't do anything, that's whenever we go to God and say, man, all we can do is pray. That's a a stupid way to go about it, but, but sometimes that's where we are. And then we get to the point where we're beyond prayer, right? I'm like, well, there's nothing we can do now. It's done, right? But Jesus goes beyond that. Whatever you think the limit for God's power is, you need to understand you're wrong. You're wrong. If you put the limit here, it's not there. If you put it here, it's not there. I don't care where you put God's powers limited at. It's, it's wrong. 
There is no limit to the power of God. There's no limit to what God can do and will do if he wills to accomplish that. And so in this situation, Jesus Christ willed to bring someone back from the dead. Right? That was his will and his good pleasure to do this for Jairus, for the girl, for the family, for the community, and for his glory. And so Jesus reached out to her and brings her from death to life. And in that moment, something that is unclean becomes clean. You know, in the Old Testament, I've been reading through the, the, the first five books of the Old Testament for the last, I don't know, 40 or 50 days. And one of the things you get in there, if you've ever read, you know, uh, Ex- the end of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you get a lot of laws in there. There's a lot of rules about what you can do and can't do and shouldn't do and shall do, and it's, it's pretty heavy. But there's a couple of them that you're not supposed to do that Jesus broke in the middle of this thing. First of all, he allowed himself to be touched by a woman who was unclean. That woman who was in the crowd was unclean. She physically isn't supposed to touch him. If you're touched by that woman, right, you're supposed to spend seven days outside of the camp, and then you're supposed to bathe seven times, and then you've got to go see the priest, and then you can come back home. It's a big deal. Right? If you touch a dead body, it's the exact same, same process. Seven days outside, away from the people, so you're not polluting anything else. Then you bathe seven times, and then you go see the priest, and the priest can declare you clean. Right? But Jesus reaches out and touch, or allows this woman to touch him, and then he reaches out, and he touches this, this woman who's dead, or this girl who's dead. And when he does that, right, he, he reaches out to something that is unclean. And here's the, here's the truth about clean and unclean throughout the entirety of the Bible. Right? We, you and I, when we mess around with unclean things, we get dirty. This is what sin is in our lives, right? We play in sin enough, we're going to get dirty. We begin to look like the things that we've taken on. We don't remain clean while we swim in filth. That's why for a long, long time, right, Baptist pastors would tell you, don't go to the movies, right? Because when you swim in that stuff long enough, what's going to happen? You're going to become like it. There was some wisdom there. I think there's some legalism too, but there's some wisdom to making sure that what you consume, what you allow to come into your eyes and into your ears and into your body, right, that, that you're wise about what you take in because it does corrupt us. We are not incorruptible. We get corrupted very, very easily. But Jesus is different. You know what happens when Jesus reaches out and touches something unclean to him? Nothing. Not a thing. Nothing happens to the Son of God because He is incorruptible. He can deal with the dirtiest, messiest, most broke-down situation. He can come into contact with people with leprosy. He can come into contact with people who are dead. He can touch anything the Old Testament says not to touch. He can consume everything the Old Testament says not to consume. And He will never be corrupted because as soon as He touches it, what happens to it? It's made clean. That, that woman who reached out to him and she was unclean, the instant she touched him, the holiness of Jesus Christ turned her clean. Right? The, the instant she touched him, she was clean. There was no more uncleanness in her at all. This little girl who was unclean because she was dead, the instant Jesus touches her, she is clean clean. Nothing corrupts Jesus Christ, but not only does nothing corrupt Jesus, when Jesus touches us, he makes us like him. This is the beauty of salvation, church, right? Right. We come into this thing all messed up. 
We've got lies and lusts and greed and envy. We've got all the sins weighed down on ourselves. And we walk up to Jesus Christ. And we hear that he was, he was died and he was resurrected and he conquered death and hell. And we hear that he did it because he loves us and he wants to be in a relationship with us. And by faith, we cry out to him. We say, Lord, save me. And through that act of faith, we reach out to Jesus Christ. And as we're touched by God in that moment, we are made clean. We're holy. We're righteous. We are un. Corrupted. We're not incorruptible. We're uncorrupted at that moment. God makes us new. That's why we celebrate new life, right? That, that we're born again. What was is no more because we've been touched by the one who takes the things that are unclean and makes them spotlessly clean. But you know what else Jesus is? Not only does he make us clean, not only is he incorruptible. There's a, there's a term, and I don't know who uses this term, so I don't want to give it to the wrong person, um, but it's, it's a term for Jesus Christ, and it says that he is our sin eater. Jesus Christ, you know, he, he took on the sins of the world on the cross, and all the sins on the world were, were poured into the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And in that moment, darkness comes across the world. But as the sins are poured on the body of Jesus Christ, at the back end of that, all of it is consumed and holiness is left. Jesus Christ can consume all sin. That means the thing that you have not told anyone about you. That if someone knew about you, if you came into my office and you told me, I might say, we don't need your type at the church, right? That thing that you've done or that you do or that you're still doing, that brings us the greatest amount of shame. That, that Jesus Christ eats all of it. There's nothing left. So what do we do? What's our response? Well, our response is the exact same response that Jairus has. The exact same response that this woman has, right? We fall on our knees before Jesus Christ and we call out to him in faith. And if that will happen, he will make you well. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, this is a message for salvation. You've come through your life, maybe you've, maybe you've been suffering under many doctors for the last 12 years. Maybe you've been self-medicating like I do, right? I don't go to doctors. I just wrap my hand up and hope that it gets well. Right? Maybe you've been taking care of yourself, and you think that if you do it long enough, and if you do it well enough, and if you're hard enough on yourself, that you can, you can get yourself to fly straight down that road where you need to be. I want you to understand, you are a terrible doctor. And the doctors that you see are not that good. We need to go to the great physician who makes all things new. He's still doing it, guys. He's still taking on unclean people and touching them and making them new. He's done it to me when I was 15 years old, right? I was messed up, broken up, had all sorts of problems in my life. Still got some, guys. But when Jesus Christ touched me, I was made new. I was made new. And some of you need that. You need to understand it's not about a, a ritualistic obedience. Jairus was ritually obedient to what the Jewish law said to do. He was good at it, right? He was a leader in the synagogue. He was, uh, you know, he was the bishop next door, right? He had everything under control. But he needed Jesus Christ. 
falls on his knees, and by faith he calls out to him and says, please help me. And what do we see? We see a caring, powerful Savior willing to save. And he's still willing to save today. He's willing to save you. He's willing to save your, your, your children and your grandchildren. We just have to bear the message of Jesus Christ to them. So if you're here today and you need salvation, this is a good day to do it. In a minute, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And when we do that, I want you to, to come to it knowing God has made you new through what Jesus Christ has done. Right? You can, you, can, you can celebrate that for the first time today with us. I would love for that to be the case. But you may be here and you're a believer already. Right? A lot of us are. I, I, right? we, we've done this game before. But you know, we, we're, we're not incorruptible like Christ. Right? We, we, sometimes we need to go back to Jesus Christ. We need to say, Lord, make me well. Not forgive me of my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness so I can go to heaven. But today, right now, Lord, I'm not well. I'm not doing well. I'm not doing right. I don't have things under control. We need to call out to Him. And if you'll do that, even though you've tried a lot of other things, you'll be amazed how gracious Jesus Christ is to come down and touch you and cleanse you of what you're struggling with right now. God is still in the power of working miracles in the lives of people. He does it daily. If you need it, you've got to cry out. And so um, I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to have an opportunity to receive the body and the blood of Jesus Christ symbolically to remember the suffering of Christ. But not just His suffering, but the victory that Christ had over the elements that we deal with. Let's pray.